Amen. Why don't you take a seat? Thank you, Jesus. I think we're all um, captured by the gaze of the Father. And if you need to hear that this morning, then hear that. He sees you. He doesn't miss you. And he loves you. Good morning, everyone. Thank you, worship team. Um, I'm Jamie, by the way, one of the pastors here at Seven Oaks. Uh, Hello to our online community. Uh, Glad to have you um, tuning in with us. Uh, We're in the Gospel of Mark. We're going to be getting into that in a few minutes. I've got a few things I want to share with you first. Um, But when I was at YWAM, um, somebody ruined that song for me. Somebody was going around singing, I could sing of your love for Trevor. (laughs) I've just ruined it for all of you now, haven't I? Matthew, I'm sorry. No, you're not. So I have to work really hard. It's not Trevor. It's a sing of your love forever. Sorry. I'm sorry. Well, you can all share my suffering. Uh, so uh, anyway, church family, I want to just share with you a few things uh, coming up. Uh, I think Brian may have mentioned in, uh, uh, in the announcement at the beginning there that we, it's, it's our AGM today, and so I'm going to give specific instructions about that and lunch as well uh, uh, at the end of the service. So I'm not going to give you any specific instructions, but just to say this, um, everyone is invited to lunch. Uh, you don't have to come to the AGM. You're not, you're not going to be refused lunch if you don't come. It's for everyone. Uh, and, but also, you're all invited to the AGM as well. So uh, uh, you don't have to be a member to come and participate and uh, ask questions. And I'm going to be sharing some, a couple of things that are, that are on my heart to share with you as well. So uh, you're all invited to that. But I'll give you instructions of what to do uh, after the service at the end. Uh, I'm going to be leading a baptism class on April 30th. So it's a couple of Sundays from now. Uh, so if you have never been baptized, uh, if you're just interested to learn about baptism, maybe you are interested to know what the Alliance thinks about baptism, uh, you have questions, I'd love to just hang out with you for the hour before the service on on the 30th, uh, 9, uh, I think that's just 9.30 up there on the slide. It's actually 9 a.m. Uh, so we're going to meet in the lobby out here. I'll be there till about 9.05 and then be taking people into uh, a room just to kind of discuss uh, baptism. And it's not really a, a class in so much. I'm not going to do a lot of teaching, but I'm going to share with you a bit. I'm going to give you some materials, invite you to ask questions, and we're just going to sort of spend some time together. And if you are interested after that in being baptism, we can talk about uh, what that might look like. And uh, then the other piece that I just want to share with you, in the month of May, for three Tuesdays, uh, I'm going to be teaching a seminar uh, on spiritual formation. And so that is uh, May 2nd, May 9th, May 16th, uh, 6.30 p.m. Uh, I forgot to check if I booked the community room, so I think it's going to be in the community room, uh, but I will confirm that with you uh, before I get my hand slapped by our admin staff. Uh, but, but anyway, uh, it'll be 6 th- uh, 6.30 p.m. We'll go for probably an hour and a half, two hours, something like that, uh, for three Tuesdays in a row. And I just invite you to come. You don't need to register. You can just show up. If there's a small group of us, great. If there's a large group of us, great. And if you're wondering what spiritual formation is, um, I want to say just come and find out. Uh, but I will just give you an idea. Um, spiritual formation 
is sort of, a, a, in some ways, a bit of a subset of discipleship. Discipleship is a bit more of an umbrella term. But spiritual formation is leaning into the ways in which we are formed spiritually. Uh, so how we are formed into the likeness of Jesus. And it's going deep in Jesus. I'm going to do some teaching. We'll do some practical exercises and spend some time in that together. So if you want to go deeper uh, with Jesus, you're invited to uh, that seminar series. All right. Um, we are in the Gospel of Mark. And uh, prior to the Easter uh, season, we were in chapter 7 for a couple of weeks. Uh, then we had a mission Sunday, if you remember, at the end of spring break. Um, after that, uh, we moved into the Easter season. So we kind of jumped forward to um, chapter 11 of Mark on Palm Sunday, uh, 14 and 15 for Good Friday, 16 for Easter Sunday, because of course those fit, um, and I wanted to stay with Mark, but what I'd like to do is, is jump back and pick up the story, because I think it's really important we get a, a fuller picture of Mark's narrative and what Mark was doing uh, with this wonderful story, this wonderful gospel of Jesus, of Jesus Christ. And so um, we're going to do that. We're not going verse by verse. You've probably noticed through the gospel, but we are picking up on some major uh, pieces. So we're going to be in the latter part of chapter 8 today. Uh, we're going to have a couple of uh, Sundays in, finishing out April in chapter 9. Then actually, we are going to take a break in, in May uh, from Mark because we've been in it since January. So we're going to take a four-week break. Uh, we're going to dive into the Old Testament, the book of Jonah, uh, I've actually invited a guest speaker for a couple of Sundays, which um, uh, you will love. Uh, because I'm teaching the seminar, I'm going to be out of the pulpit a little bit. Um, and uh, for some of you, he's quite literally family. Brian Bueller is coming for a couple of Sundays, so he's literally family for some of you. Uh, and uh, for others, you will know Brian. Uh, Brian was a pastor here decades ago as a youth pastor, and some of you won't know who he is, so well, let me tell you, he's a phenomenal guy, an incredible preacher. In fact, after he's preached, you'll just be disappointed I'm back. Um, but uh, but uh, Brian is a, a great man. I can't wait to have him here. Looking forward to him uh, sharing with us for a couple of Sundays. Uh, and then what we'll do uh, for the month of June and the first Sunday of July is we'll finish Mark. We'll be in chapter 10, uh, and then we'll go to uh, 12 and 13, and that'll finish out the gospel. So that's where we're headed uh, up until the summer. So we have been following the story of Jesus, the unmatched story of the Lord Jesus Christ, as recounted uh, by Mark using the stories, sermons, and sayings of the apostle Peter inspired by the Holy Spirit. And the gospel begins with John the Baptist. In fact, uh, Matthew and Luke spend time, of course, uh, with the birth of Jesus. Uh, Mark doesn't do that, just dives straight into John the Baptist, the messenger, who is there declaring the way of the Lord out in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord, and he's baptizing people with a baptism of repentance. And all of a sudden, Jesus shows up on the scene, and Jesus himself is baptized by John, not because he's got anything to repent about, but because he's identifying with sinful humanity and stepping into our story, and most specifically, stepping into the story of Israel. Um, after this, uh, actually, let's just go back. During the baptism, you have this wonderful piece, this wonderful story of where the heavens are literally rent apart, and the Holy Spirit descends on Jesus, and we have this wonderful, beautiful, fatherly, heavenly affirmation of the Son, where he says, this is my Son with whom I'm well pleased. 
And then Jesus heads north, and uh, really for, for all of the chapters we've been looking at, except, of course, the ones over Easter, he's in and around Galilee, going from village to village, and he's declaring the word of God, he's preaching in the synagogues, he's healing the sick, he's driving out demons, he calls his disciples, he calms the storm, he travels back and forth across the lake, he goes to the Decapolis and meets Legion there. All of those stories that we've been kind of looking at, it's all focused in and around Galilee. It's called Jesus Galilean Ministry. And so he spends time there, and what he's doing is he's both declaring the kingdom and implementing the kingdom. He's preaching that the kingdom has arrived, and he's actually showing that the kingdom is being implemented in and through him as he heals and as he drives out and so on. So we have kingdom uh, declaration and kingdom implementation. And then in the beginning of chapter 8 that, we, that we're not going to look at together, we have the feeding of the 4,000 story. And at the end of that story, you have an interesting interaction between Jesus and the disciples that reveals that the disciples really don't get what's going on still. Um, Jesus starts to talk about the yeast of the Pharisees and the, the yeast of Herod and so on. And, and the disciples think he's talking about bread because they forgot to bring bread. And, they, and Jesus sort of says, oh, gosh. Uh, and they just don't seem to get it still. In our chapter, or in our uh, a few verses, rather, of the section that we're going to be looking at, things are going to start to become a bit clearer for the disciples, but misunderstanding still abounds for them. And so what we're going to see is actually this is a pivotal point in the Gospel of Mark. It's a hinge point. It's the center point. It's where something changes, and we're going to see that. So if you've got your Bible with you, open to uh, chapter 8, verse uh, 22, and we're going to read the rest of the chapter, and we'll just actually touch on on nine very briefly here. They came to Bethsaida. Some people brought a blind man to him and begged him to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he put saliva on his eyes and, and laid his hands on him, he asked him, can you see anything? And the man looked up and he said, well, I can see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on him again, and he looked intently, and his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Then he sent him away to, the, uh, to his home, and he said, don't even go into the village. Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea, uh, Caesarea Philippi, and on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they answered him, John the Baptist, and others Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. He asked them, but, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, oh, well, you're the Messiah. And he sternly ordered him not to tell anyone about him. Then he began to teach them that the Son of Man must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this all quite openly. And Peter took him aside and he began to rebuke him. But turning and looking at his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. He called the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If anyone had become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake, for the sake of the gospel, will save it. 
For what will it profit them to gain the whole world and forfeit their life? Indeed, what can they give in return for their life? Those who are ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of them the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father and with the holy angels. And he said to them, truly I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God has come with power. Amen. Big passage, hey? Lots going on. Uh, We have a a number of pieces to this. We have uh, the Bethsaida incident with this kind of two-stage healing that goes on. Uh, Then we get the interaction with the disciples where Jesus says, who do people say I am and who do you say I am? And Peter's declaration. Uh, Then we get this revelation that actually I'm going to need to suffer. And Peter rebukes him and he rebukes him back. Uh, And then we get this take up your cross uh, piece. So there's a lot going on uh, in this passage, but they're linked. Bethsaida was a village on the northern coast of the Sea of Galilee, which you'll see there right at the top. And the disciples and Jesus have been traveling around uh, the, the, the villages of Galilee, and they've been crossing over. Uh, Jesus has been getting in a boat and so on. And they arrive in Bethsaida, and some unknown people bring a blind man to Jesus. And Jesus takes him out of the village, takes him away from the village and the villagers. And we'll come back to that. And then we get this really weird two-stage healing. Put saliva on his eyes and he lays hands on him and he says, can can you see anything? And he says, well, kind of, it's blurry. I I see people, but they just look like trees. So Jesus is like, oh, and he he does it again and he lays his hands on him. And then all of a sudden he can can see clearly 20-20 vision, praise the Lord. Another healing, isn't this great? But it leaves us with questions. Did Jesus mess up the first time? Why was the man not healed? Did he not have enough faith? Was Jesus having a bad day? How are we supposed to understand this? Well, Mark is actually the only gospel you'll find this story in. You won't find it in Matthew. You won't find it in Luke. You won't find it in John. You only find it in Mark. And I think Mark includes this miracle because he's trying to make a really, really important statement that the others were not trying to make. And you'll find this, that some of the Gospels have a story that the others don't, or a couple of them will have it and the others don't. And it's because they're inspired by the Spirit and they're making some theological points. John is the only one that has Jesus turning the water and the wine. The other three aren't interested in that miracle, but it's connected to Jesus' seven signs and seven I am statements in the Gospel of John. And so I think Mark slash Peter uh, is making a point here. Caesarea Philippi is much further north from uh, Bethsaida. It's up on the slopes of uh, Mount Hermon, and you'll see that also uh, there. It is uh, quite a trek from Bethsaida. They would have been going for quite a while. It's, it's higher elevation. It's a little cooler. It's a, a little greener. It would have been a bit more lush. Uh, it's located close to the, uh, the source of the Jordan River. It would have been a lot cooler than the blazing heat of, of you know, below sea level Galilee. And most importantly, though, it's away from the crowds. It's away from the lake. It's away from the villages. And as they make their trek north to Caesarea Philippi, Jesus says to them, well, who do the people say that I am? And they say, well, well, some say John the Baptist, and, and the reason they were saying this is because, well, John the Baptist has come back to life, and that, of course, would explain why you're so powerful. 
That's why you can do your miracles. And others say, actually, it's Elijah. And, and, and this is connected to Jewish belief that, you know, in the scriptures, it talks about Elijah being taken off in a chariot, and there's this Jewish belief he's going to return at some point. So maybe this is Elijah who's returned, and we, knew, we know he can perform miracles. And that would explain why Jesus is so powerful. And still others say, well, he's, he's one, of the, one of the prophets. And uh, so, uh, so they have this conversation, um, and, and then Jesus turns to them, and he says, but who do you say that I am? And Peter, a spokesperson for the disciples, pipes up and says, well, well you're the Messiah. You're the Christ. I think Mark slash Peter puts these stories together, or rather tells these two stories that are together because he's trying to make a point. Just like the man was gradually gaining sight, so the people also needed to gain their sight, and the disciples needed to gain their sight. What I mean by that is Jesus first touched the man, and he begins to see in part And he sees people, but they look like trees. The crowds, the people see Jesus, but he looks like a prophet. John the Baptist, Elijah, one of the prophets, they're going to need a second touch, a greater revelation if they're ever going to understand who he is. Even more importantly, though, I think, is that the man begins to see. He sees partially, but not fully. The disciples are beginning to see as well. You're the Messiah. You're the Christ. They're starting to see, but it's still blurry. Jesus still looks like a tree to them. The disciples are seeing that he's the Messiah, but they're seeing it through the lens of their expectations. And Jesus is going to need to teach them and give them a second touch so they can understand what true Messiahship actually looks like. That it's going to involve suffering and death and sacrifice. It's not going to be about overthrowing the Romans. And that's why in verse 31, he says, Then he began to teach them that the Son of Man must undergo suffering and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and so on. It's right after the declaration. For you disciples to see fully and not just see people that look like trees, you're going to need to listen to my teaching. You're going to need to understand my mission You're going to need to get the vision of God's kingdom. You're going to have to understand true messiahship. And by the way, you're going to have to live it out yourselves because you have to take up your cross and follow me. And if we need further proof that the disciples still didn't get it and they were only seeing partially, Peter just rebukes Jesus. He says, what are you talking about? We know messiahs don't suffer. Messiahs are victorious. Jesus, stop it. What are you doing? We know that you, we need to fight. When do we get our swords, by the way? You know, that kind of thing. Peter is convinced that Jesus is the Messiah. He's seeing in part. But he's misunderstood true Messiahship. And Jesus then gives him a pretty stern rebuke. He says, get behind me, Satan. Has anybody ever read that and thought, that was a bit harsh? Like, he just called him the devil, right? It's a little bit harsh, except it isn't. Because essentially, what is being presented to Jesus is the same as what he was tempted with in the wilderness, and is the same temptation he's going to face in in Gethsemane, the temptation to avoid the cross. Jesus is not calling Peter Satan, but he's recognizing in Peter the sly voice of Satan that was there at the temptation in the wilderness. 
I'll come back in an opportune time or opportune times. And Jesus is recognizing that voice and he's like, get behind me, Satan. He's not, I think Peter had become like this unwitting spokesperson for Satan, perhaps, not because he was possessed by the devil, but because his mind was focused not on things of God. Satan was exploiting Peter and Jesus sees that temptation. So these two incidents then, Bethsaida and Caesarea Philippi, I believe are connected that the healing thing, the two-stage healing thing, is not because the man lacked faith. It's not because Jesus couldn't heal. It's because Jesus was making a point about what the disciples were, were undergoing and what they still needed to go through. And, and, and let's just see again how they mirror each other. Jesus took the man out of the village. Jesus took the disciples away from the lake and the crowds. In both, he insists on secrecy. Don't go into the village. Don't tell anyone to the disciples that I'm the Messiah. Jesus asked the blind man, do you see anything? He asked the disciples, who do people say that I am? Or what do you see when you look at me? What do you see? There's a need for a second touch to correct the man's vision. The disciples are going to need a second touch to correct their vision of Messiah that they just declared. One of the uh, themes in Mark, and in fact, the other gospels have it as well, is this kind of secrecy motif that throughout the Gospels, Jesus is often pretty hush about his identity. Uh, he, even, he even hushes demons. And we've just seen it twice in our, in our passage. This is actually throughout the Gospels. Jesus is really keen on, on keeping people quiet about who he is. And the reason is, is because his time has not yet come. It's not time. The, if people know who I am, this is going to boil over. The Romans are going to come in and crush stuff. And, and, and the, the, Jew, the Jewish leaders are already suspect. It's going to, my time has not yet come. Don't go declaring yet. We see it most clearly in John 6, 15, where he says, when Jesus realized they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he withdrew to the mountain by himself. They, they wanted to make him king. Jesus is... That's why the secrecy motif is there. No, I need you to not go into the village. Do not declare this. And people sometimes didn't listen to him. This is why this is seen as the midway point in the gospel of Mark. It's the hinge point. Peter's declaration that Jesus is the Messiah at Caesarea Philippi is the hinge point of the gospel of Mark. It's the center of the gospel. And from this point, things change. The first half is all about Jesus declaring the kingdom and implementing the kingdom and taking up the story of Israel and preaching in the synagogues and doing all those wonderful things and traveling around Galilee. But after the declaration at Caesarea Philippi, about as far away from Jerusalem as you can get and still be in the territory of Israel, Jesus shifts and his journey begins south towards the holy city. He begins to move towards Palm Sunday and Good Friday and Easter Sunday. He begins to walk towards his destiny. And another shift happens in that, largely speaking, Jesus doesn't address crowds anymore. He doesn't speak in synagogues anymore. He doesn't really go into many villages anymore. He's on the road and he's focusing just on his disciples now and he's teaching them and preparing them for what is going to happen because he's going to leave in their hands the birth of the church. And we've seen that they don't get a lot. <laughs> of course, he's going to send his spirit. That's another story for the book of Acts. But 
But anyway, he starts to invest in them. They have a partial vision. They, they, they get that the kingdom is coming. They get that he's the Messiah, but they do not understand his mission and purpose and messiahship yet. Hence, verse 31, he starts to teach them about what's going to happen. And as we saw recently, just over the Easter season, they still don't get it. Peter is still going to cut the ear off the high priest slave, the servant. Peter's still going to deny him three times. The, the disciples are still going to scatter. The shepherd's going to be struck and the, the, the sheep will scatter and all of that. But after the resurrection, after the resurrection of Jesus, after the road to Emmaus that Matthew talks about, when he, when he starts to explain the Old Testament and unpack it from there, like, oh, they start to get it. After the ascension to heaven, after the Spirit comes at Pentecost to empower and guide, then they start to get it. Oh, he was teaching us this. We didn't understand. Now we get it. And the vision becomes clear. It doesn't look like a tree anymore. It's not blurry anymore. The vision becomes clear and the church is birthed. In our passage, Jesus then shares the famous words with his disciples about the need for followers to take up their cross and follow him. And taking up your cross, of course, is a pretty vivid picture. The, the cross was a form of, of capital punishment where uh, the criminal would literally carry the cross beam uh, to the resurrection site. Uh, so it's a pretty vivid scene. And, uh, and of course, for some people in the first century, including uh, most of the disciples, including Peter, certainly, uh, they did actually get put to death for their faith in Jesus. They literally carried their cross. Um, church history has it that Peter was actually crucified upside down. Um, that, was, that was his choice. He didn't feel worthy to be crucified in the same way as his, as his Lord, so they crucified him upside down. Um, so some did literally take up their cross, um, and of course that's been true throughout history and is true of today. People give their lives for their faith in Jesus, and they literally die because they declare Christ. But that doesn't happen to, to many of us, and I don't think Jesus then is saying that we all should voluntarily die by capital punishment. Uh, that is not what Jesus is saying. What he's saying, however, is that a central part of discipleship a central part of our following Jesus is the willingness to lay down our rights, to lay down our agendas, to lay down our dreams, to lay down our desire for grandeur and, and uh, position and, and wealth and, and all of those things. There's not, nothing wrong with position and wealth and and all of those things, and we should work hard at our jobs, and all those, there's nothing wrong with any of that, but there is wrong of selfish pursuit for it. And so, we need to lay down our rights for a kingdom that will endure. And in fact, Jesus goes on and says, holding on to a vision of the kingdom that is blind or half-blind, a vision that is really our own kingdom, our own selfish desires, we may actually find that we lose out. Paradoxically, those who want to keep hold of their life will probably find that they lose it. But those who are willing to lose their life for my sake will find that they find it. Because only in Jesus can we find true life. And denying ourselves and, and taking up our cross will look differently for everyone. 
look differently for everyone. For some, it literally means being willing to lay down our lives for Jesus. And many of our brothers and sisters in other parts of the world experience that, laying down their right to safety. For some of us, it means leaving our job or leaving our home or leaving whatever as we sense a call from God, as many of the disciples did. For some, it might mean a purposeful decision to renounce status and honor because we know if I take this position, if I take this job, if I take this thing, I know actually the only thing it will do will war against my soul and take me away from Jesus because I know I have a real issue with pride and I need to deny that and I need to lay it down. Many of us are not bold enough to do that because we live for a kingdom. We live for the 70, 80, 90, 100 years that we have on this earth rather than living for the eternity. That it's, it's mad, really, but we do it. We all do it. For some, it might mean laying down the desire for security, for wealth. Maybe it means laying down your right to get revenge, knowing that vengeance is the Lord's, waiting for his vindication. It's hard for people who highly value justice and rightness. For some people, denying themselves is fill in the blank. There's so many different things, and not everybody's called to lay down the same thing. I think actually more of it is about the willingness to lay down stuff that's inside of us. We probably all know things that hinder our ability to give everything to Jesus. And in the comfort of the West, it's important for us to get that following Jesus is not simply about making a few adjustments to how we live, a little bit of behavior modification. Well, I just need to live like this and not do this and do a bit of this and I'm good. As though that is following Jesus. <laughs> it's not. Following Jesus, discipleship is not part-time volunteer work that someone does as an extracurricular activity. It's not an occasional polite, polite bow to the Father. Discipleship following Jesus is learning to say, not my will, but yours. And you may find that things that other people look at and think, well, that's a, that's a very worldly thing is actually the very thing that God wants you to take up. And that's okay. It's, it is no one size fits all. Not my will, but yours. And then watching as God takes you on the adventure of a lifetime. And that adventure may well include a whole bunch of sacrifice and denial, but all oh, the rewards. So by way of application today, number one, what does denying yourself and taking up your cross actually mean to you? What does it mean to me? Is there something you need to change? Has Jesus been calling you to something perhaps for years and you've always avoided it because you think the, the cost is too great? One of the greatest lies is that when God calls us to something, and he doesn't always call us to easy things, but that somehow what I'm going to need to lie down is too much of a cost and I know I'm just going to regret it forever. Whereas what you actually find is when you lay it down, and I've had to do this in my own life, when you actually lay it down... Um, and you take up what it is God is calling you to do, you start to realize, oh, I don't even have desire for that thing anymore. Hallelujah. But we're lied to, and we're told, don't give that up. So let me tell you, 
what is the, or let me ask you, what is the thing? And let me say to you, take the plunge. Begin the adventure. What the world has to offer, money, power, status, influence, grandeur, none of which are wrong in and of themselves, and it's not wrong to have any of those things, but to chase after them as an end in themselves is absolutely empty and unsatisfying is what we find. How many of the most successful people in our world are the most miserable people on the planet? We know that. And some people have nothing. You see pictures of them with the biggest smiles on their face sometimes. Don't fall for a short-term gain kingdom and miss the opportunity to live for something that's eternal. So what's the thing for you? And, and no one can answer that for you. You have to answer that for yourself. And secondly, the second application is to ask yourself, does your vision of Jesus need to become a bit clearer? Is it fuzzy and blurry or is it bright and radiant? Does it look a little bit like a tree or does it look actually, no, like the person of the risen Lord Jesus? How is your vision these days? We, we are blessed to live in the church age in the sense that we have the scriptures and so we can understand the kingdom far more than the poor disciples uh, could. They were trying to work it out and sometimes I think we read it and we kind of roll our eyes and all oh, those disciples, they just didn't get it. And it's like, no, we, we would have been in the same boat. They, they, try, they were trying to figure it out, but it was hard to get their head around it. But we too who have the scriptures... And have the truth, we can end up drifting. We can end up with fuzzy thinking and fuzzy theology and fuzzy vision. So let me just encourage you, as we've moved into the spring, and I know it doesn't always feel like that, but as we've moved into the spring season, let me encourage you to dive into a spring-like season with Jesus. And you know what that means. Engage the scriptures, pray more fervently, practice new spiritual disciplines, find small community, ask someone to be your mentor, have an agreement with somebody to keep you accountable. These are not new things. Prayerfully make some new goals. Engage in activities and community and discipleship that brings Jesus into greater focus for you. Stare at him more intently. Follow him with more intensity. You will never regret that posture. So let me encourage you with those words. God bless you, church family. Um, I'm going to invite the team up. We're going to sing. And then I'm going to come up and I'm going to give a little bit of instruction afterwards and, uh, and pray for us.